Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This show was pre-recorded on November 19th, so we are not taking listener calls at this time. We are interested in your comments, though. You can contact us at news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is the ninth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Our conversation today is Election Reflections 2020. We'll talk about the November 3rd general election, what just happened here in Maine and around the country, what went right, what went wrong, and what it says about the future of our democracy. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum, and we have a fantastic lineup of guests today. First, Shelley Crosby is the Orono Town Clerk since 2016. Prior to that, she was Town Clerk in Lincoln. She's the current president of the Maine Town and City Clerks Association. This fall, she was named Clerk of the Year by her peers at the Maine Town and City Clerks Association. Say hi, Shelley. Hi there. Matt Dunlap is here. He's, uh, at least for another month, the Maine's 49th Secretary of State, now serving his fourth consecutive term and seventh overall. He's termed out now. He's got just a month to go. Um, he also chairs, uh, he's the chair of the state's Complete Count Committee. Um, the census is, count is over, but he was a, a leading voice on the census in Maine. So thank you for that, Matt. Say hello. Hello. Also with us is Amy Freed. Amy is the John Mitchell Nickerson Professor and Chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Maine. She oversees the Maine Policy Scholar Program at the University of Maine, a frequent guest on our show. Welcome, Amy. And Jill Goldthwaite is an award-winning columnist for the Ellsworth American and the Mount Desert Islander. She's a retired nurse and former independent Maine State Senator, a close observer of the political scene in Maine. Welcome, Jill. And last but by no means least is Meg McCormick. Maine, Meg is the Maine Director and New England Coordinator for the Campus Election Engagement Project. In 2019, Meg founded the Maine Students Vote Initiative, a volunteer program housed within the League of Women Voters of Maine that focuses on youth peer-to-peer nonpartisan voter engagement. Welcome, Maine. Meg. Hi. Yes. Hi, Anne. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Okay, um, so election 2020, we've been talking about it for a couple of weeks now, and there's still so much more to understand. We'll probably be talking about it for years to come. Um, it, the votes are still being counted in some places, and there were some surprises. What did we find out about ourselves as a state and as a nation and about the future of governing? Let's just start with a softball question to you, Matt. Um, wh what went right and what went wrong from your perspective? Well, not much went wrong. I, you know, I say that with a sigh of relief. Um, you know, going back to March when we began talking about how do you conduct an election in the middle of a global pandemic, um, and I know that the, the League of Women Voters was very active in this conversation, along with the conservation voters, ACLU, AFL-CIO, and so many other organizations. Um, you know, all sort of watching very nervously how this is going to play out. Um, I think. I have to say that the, probably the greatest resource that we've had in this year has been our town and city clerks. They have ably stepped up, um, you know, been very adaptable, uh, and voters too. I mean, voters really took this year very, very seriously, and they turned out in record numbers 
and safely. We, we know that's the fact from following the, the safety guidelines as laid out by our Center for Disease Control. We saw no spike in infections in July. And uh, we do see a surge now. That started before the election. So we don't see the election as being a contributing factor to that at all. And we had something like probably knocking on the door of around 80% turnout, which is by far our highest turnout in Maine history in the election. In terms of things that went wrong, well, the pandemic went wrong, but we were able to adapt to it. Um, one quick thing about uh, our other partners, the governor was critical in making some of the decisions that needed to be made uh, to get uh, like the drop boxes, you know, and towns started asking us about drop boxes. You know, we said, yeah, we can help you pay for them. But when the companies were overwhelmed with back orders, uh, Southern Maine Community College stepped up and they came up with this ingenious design, taking a sheet of, of um, stainless steel and basically folding it like a piece of origami into a drop box. And then a barbecue grill company in Maine was making these things so that every town that wanted one could get them. And the governor's office was critical. And, you know, Meg, with the work that she was doing with getting college students engaged, along with the town clerks, um, helped us have a high turnout uh, in our college campuses without the long lines for voter registration that we've seen in the past. So really, I got I, it was very it was a light lift for us on Election Day. Uh, we didn't have too many things go wrong, usual confusions, but nothing extreme. And uh, we had a very high turnout and I think a pretty strong mandate from the voters. So, Shelley, how did it feel on your end? You were boots on the ground, you and your colleagues in the town offices around the state, you know, 500 of them or more. How, mm -hmm. What are you hearing? Well, so um, speaking with the clerks around the state, we really hit the ground hard, as Matt had alluded to. We had um, the June election delay, delayed until July. And then we, of course, started the 1st of August with absentee ballots. Absentee ballots came in fast and furious. Um, every day we were opening up the electronic system and we were seeing, you know, as many as 100 requests a day in some communities around Maine. So the clerks really never, they never stopped between July and November's election. We, it felt like one long groundhog day that just kept <laughs> happening and happening. But the good news is when we got to election day, a lot of us, I think, were overprepared, if that makes sense, because we're used to in a presidential election preparing for just an onslaught of same day voter registrations and, of course, casting of ballots. That didn't happen in Maine like it has traditionally in the past because of the pandemic and because of all of the great media coverage and Matt's office getting out, you know, the informationals about request your ballot early. We really did the work of the election in the 30 days leading up to the election. I can say in Orono, I had prepared for about 4,500 people. I had staffed for 4,500 people to go through my door. And I had a layout that supported 4,500 people going through my door. I only had like 1,800 people on election day. So it felt a little bizarre compared to what the norm is, um, but we we were busy the 30 days in advance. The absentee voting really was the way that Maine voters cast their ballots. Amy, can you tell, was turnout surprising in Maine or around around the country? And you're on mute, so okay. there you go. 
Yeah, I mean, turnout was extremely high this year. Uh, it was high all, all over the place. Uh, we're going to have a record number of people who voted. It's still being counted, but it was really extraordinary turnout. Uh, some of it was obviously due to mobilization efforts, but really, I think a lot of the public just wanted to come out and vote, you know, whether or not they were contacted by a campaign. Uh, and, you know, you expect good turnout most presidential years, but this was really, really quite strong. And uh, I mean, the students I talked to were very interested in voting. Uh, they and many of them were first time voters. What about that, Meg? Student turnout was pretty high this year, was it? Uh, yeah, they're estimating, uh, my colleagues at Tufts are estimating 52 to 55% of um, young people ages um, of 18 to 29 year old cast a ballot. Um, I think in Maine, we're estimating 17% of youth share um, of all those casts. So we are still waiting on some other like um, reports that come out in the spring 2021. But Anecdotally, on the ground, yeah, we've heard, uh, I know a lot of folks were doing some visual art and like chalking up and doing a tally about how many students voted and nearly 75% of um, students on a particular campus said they voted. And so, uh, yeah, we're, we're, I think we're going to see some record breaking numbers um, once we punch uh, these numbers. Among students, that's fantastic. Jill, what was surprising to you about the turnout? I mean, I think Trump actually got more votes this year than he did in 2016. Um, even though Biden got more than that. But what, what surprised you about turnout? Well, I wasn't really surprised that it was as high as it was. What surprised me was the amazing town clerks who handled it as well as they did, because that's just a challenge that no one could be faulted for, for seeing the odd thing go wrong here and there, but I, I'm going to say her name, Sharon Linskett, Bar Harbor, Maine. She was amazing. <laughs> she is a detail obsessed and you don't mess with election stuff when it comes to Sharon uh, and things went extremely well around here. So I think the, the surprise was how well things went pretty much everywhere, as far as I know, uh, despite the pandemic and the volume of voters. Jill, I'll stick with you for, for a minute. I mean, I know the polling indicated some different results than what we actually got. What were the biggest surprises in terms of the outcomes to you? Well, I think um, that I had um, tended to feel that the polls could well have been accurate in the Senate race. Um, they were not. And with the amount of resources from national sources poured into the Democratic side of that race, um, you know, by all rights, that that should have been Sarah Gideon's race. But on the other hand, no one would ever count Senator Collins out. And she has a very deep rooted history in the state of Maine and people who are loyal to her for so many reasons, politically, family reasons, because she's so deeply Maine, all of those things. And and I think it's a kind of a nice story that those loyalties overcame the more common trappings of a candidacy, the money, the ads, and, and all those things. I think Collins just was really proved that um, she is a person who has earned every bit of the regard in which she is, is held in the state. Do you want to comment on that, that maybe I, Amy, I think she got like 50,000 more votes than Trump 
did. So she obviously attracted some of Biden's voters. Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, one of the things that I had a lot of conversations with before the election with people around the country was whether this nationalization trend was going to hold in Maine where people tend to vote by party more than they used to. Um, and that happened, I'd say, more than it has in the past. I mean, if you go from 69% to 51%, you've obviously lost a lot of vote share from uh, people outside of your party, which happened. But on the other hand, it didn't happen because there were those split voters. Um, I'd also say that, you know, there's just huge incumbency advantages. We see that with every congressional, you know, it, if you look at congressional races altogether, not every single one, obviously, because incumbents do get defeated sometimes, but House members and senators, the incumbents almost always win. I mean, over 90%. You're talking about close to 95%. So, you know, you have a name, you have a familiarity with the public, you have resources you've brought to the state or the district. And that was a big part of the Collins race was uh, playing up the aspects of her senatorial career that related to her having been an incumbent. And then you have a candidate who's not nearly as well known, who doesn't bring that same to the table, you know, doesn't have the same the, the same capacity to do that. And then also is being defined very negatively by the other side. So doesn't you know, it, so so it's a it's it's always it's always difficult for uh, a non-incumbent to beat a senator, and it's, and I consistently said that to reporters. You have a four-term senator who got sixty-nine percent of the vote the last time, and even when the polls weren't looking so good, you really couldn't count out Susan Collins. Right. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters. Our topic today is Election Reflections 2020. Our guests this afternoon are Shelley Crosby, Orono Town Clerk and President of the Maine Town and City Clerks Association, Matt Dunlap, Maine Secretary of State, Amy Freed, the John Mitchell Nickerson Professor and Chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Maine, Jill Goldthwaite, columnist and former independent Maine State Senator, and Meg McCormick, Maine Director and New England Coordinator for the Campus Election Engagement Project. Um, talk about surprises, Matt. Were you surprised by the uh, down ticket performance of the Republicans in the state legislative races? A little bit. Um, I, and I think this kind of speaks to the what we saw, generally speaking, in the polling. You know, when you saw the polling data showing, you know, and it wasn't just confined to Maine. I mean, there were some polling models suggesting that Biden was going to get 411 electoral votes early on. Um, you know, Jared Golden with 26, a 26 point lead. At one point, Gideon was showing a 12 point lead in the polls. But, you know, you drive around Maine and I do a lot of driving around Maine and, you know, you go up to, you know, northern Maine through towns like Greenville and Dover and Millinocket. Uh, it was stunning to me how many Trump signs I saw on people's lawns. And it just didn't compute for me that people would be voting for Donald Trump and then vote for Democrats down the rest of the ticket. And, you know, I, th I thought that there's a potential that Congressman Golden could be in a lot, could actually be in trouble. Um, so what we're seeing, I think, here is that conservative voters are grotesquely underrepresented in these polls. 
for whatever reason, either they don't respond to them or they don't answer truthfully or they're not polled in the first place. And I don't know, I'm not a pollster. But um, you know, in the legislative races, those tend to be more you know, local, you know, people know each other. Uh, the fact that the Democrats lost so many incumbents was a bit of a shock. Although some of them we knew were in a bit of trouble anyway. You know, um, Jim Handy and Lewison had won his previous two elections after recounts. So that's always a very competitive district. Henry Ingwersen and Arundel, um, first term, um, but his the previous incumbent ran, uh, who was very popular. So that was less of a surprise. Um, but yeah, I think overall, uh, the conservative vote did very well in Maine on election day, probably more so than I think uh, anybody was prepared to see happen. Um, and, and I think, you know, it was offset for the Democrats by the fact they had an advantage in the number of candidates they had. There was a lot of empty, unopposed seats for the Republicans uh, that they didn't challenge, which worked to the Democrats' advantage. On the other hand, the Democrats picked up seats in the Senate. They ended up to 22 seats. So a bit of a mixed bag, to say the least. And it, it sort of spoke to how voters were feeling this year. Well, I mean, it certainly seemed like people were protect, pre- predicting a very high voter turnout among Democrats. People, I mean, I didn't hear that much about people predicting, pre- projecting the incredibly high turnout among Republicans that we also saw. Go ahead, Amy. I mean, that was really one of the open questions for me, whether that was going to happen, because what the Trump campaign and other state Republican parties were bragging about ahead of time was that they had done a great deal of work for a long time with voters, making lots and lots of voter contacts. And what the, their really their theory of the race of how they could win was to increase turnout among the groups that most supported Trump, which are, uh, you know, primarily college educated, non-college educated uh, white voters, rural voters. And so they had been really working it very, very hard. Uh, Democrats. Uh, didn't do as much of that, especially for one there. We didn't have a, the Democrats didn't have um, a candidate <laughs> for a time. You know, you had, to, you had to go through the primaries. You couldn't do the same work that you do with an incumbent. And then the other was that um, they didn't do that work because of the pandemic. And then only towards the very end started doing door to door, which has some impact. You know, it definitely has some impact on turnout. I'm not saying it has a tremendous amount, but it was a whole series of efforts going on for really years trying to pull out those voters. Um, And that was my question when people asked me what's going to happen. I was like, I don't know what is going to happen with GOP turnout. And and it was very high. But then, you, you know, it ended up being kind of matched or it by. Democratic and independents who swung towards uh, towards Democrats, towards Biden, elected Joe Biden. I mean, does that speak though to the intensity of feeling on both sides to you know the loyalty, if not to these candidates, then to certain ideals? I mean, I feel like the intensity is really pretty high right now. Jill, do you have a thought about that? Uh, well, I think there's no doubt that the intensity is high. In fact, I was thinking about Matt's comments on on the signs he saw. I had quite a lot of people on both sides of the aisle saying they were afraid to put signs out. They were afraid of some kind of retaliation from 
people noting that they had signs for one candidate or the other. Um, that in itself is a bit distressing, but it kind of led me to wonder in areas where you saw a lot of signs for one candidate or another, what was that about and what were the true sentiments in those areas? So uh, I, I think there were a, a lot of signs of intensity, but in for, unfortunately intensity kind of translates into animosity to a, a sad degree. And uh, people who had strong feelings about the election, as we have commonly discussed for the last year, have a difficult time communicating to people who have a different opinion of it. And despite some really good efforts to bridge that communication gap of which this program, I think, is one, um, it, it, it's very difficult now to cross that divide. And I'm, I think sensitivities are going to run high for a long time to come. Anybody want to talk about the political divide and what it means for governing going forward? It certainly seems like we're all a little bit on edge these days. Well, I, I can mention some of my observations along that line, and I agree with what Jill says. You know, one of my classmates from Bar Harbor asked me a question about, you know, how do people support Trump? You know, and, 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 I, and I understand this to a fair degree, you know, um, if you look at where we've been over the last 20 years, things have been very difficult. You know, the, the, it's not been an easy time economically for people. There's been a lot of instability because we've had this perpetual war in Afghanistan. You know, at one point, gasoline was nearly $5 a gallon. You had the housing bubble. And, you know, when people are running for public office, and maybe, Amy, you can chime in on this, you know, you, when you have a choice and you're in this situation and you have two candidates and one says, I will work across the aisle. I will work with the other side. And the other candidate says, I will fight for you. Who are you going to vote for? You're going to vote for the guy that's going to fight for you. They get elected. And what do they do? They go to Washington or Augusta and they fight. They, they maintain their campaign pledge. And what people seem to like about President Trump and just in the discussions I've had out in the world is that when he walks up to a negotiating table, he grabs the edge of it and he flips it over. And people like that, that you know, that easy you know, throw that first punch, you know, and, and not really understanding what they probably could use is a different version of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and a little bit less of a Muhammad Ali, if you will. So, you know, I think just just that how that how we how we govern going forward, the, the basic framework of parliamentary law remains, which is it's not about winning and losing. It's about finding agreement on how to go forward on an issue that does not change. And I think that's going to be the challenge both for the main legislature and for the United States Congress going forward, regardless of who gets elected. Anybody else want to talk about that? What was the mood among your voters, Meg? Um, yeah, young people, belligerence, intensity of commitment and so forth. And then Amy had her hand up too. Um, yeah, so, you know, youth in Maine, you know, 61% voted for, for Biden. They're, um, I believe they're estimating. Um, and 33% for Trump. So on college campuses, I mean, why students showed up, they showed up, um, the, some of the top rated reasons was because of COVID um, and the president's response to COVID. And if we look at the CARES Act, students were left out of um, 
of that uh, racism, and then that echoes back to the killings of George Floyd, Brianna Taylor, and others, um, climate change, and then economy and jobs. So um, those were the reasons why students showed up, and then you know that's a reflection, really, of who they voted for. Of the partisan split among yeah. them, yeah. Amy, what were you going to throw in? Well, I mean, no doubt we're in this period of great intensity and polarization and people living in lots of different worlds. Um, I actually saw on the on the science question, uh, I, I saw a lot of signs in, in my neighborhood in Bangor, more than there were four years ago, and, uh, and more varied as well. I think uh, last time... Democrats, even a lot of Democrats weren't that crazy about Hillary Clinton. There are very few Clinton signs. There were more Biden signs this year. I still have a neighbor who has a flag out that says Trump 2020 make liberals cry again. He hasn't taken that in yet, which I think shows a certain perspective about how people see each other, that people don't just disagree with each other, but uh, dislike each other. Um, I mean, the idea that you would want your opponent to feel bad is, is not something that I think we grew up with. We just were like, okay, I want to win. I want you, <laughs> I want to be, you know, I want my party to win. I want my candidates. So I want my opponent's supporters to feel bad. But that is a part of our politics now, that, that very strong negativity. And, and there's obviously a lot of negativity on the, on the Democratic side towards Republicans as well. I wouldn't, I, I'd say that, you know, it's happening, uh, 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 you know, with the different parties. The problem is, though, um, as Matt alluded to, pointed out that, you know, what happens when it comes to governance? Because people do ultimately want some problems solved. There are a lot of issues that people care about, whether it's dealing with the economy right now, uh, climate crisis that's coming, or that we're in the midst of healthcare. I mean, so many things, even things like taking care of their roads, good school, local schools, all these things have to get worked on and people have to work together for it. And, um, you know, if we do indeed, as we all assume, have a Biden presidency, um, and then if we end up with a GOP Senate, which is a little unsure yet because of the two Georgia races, it's going to be very, very hard. You know, I don't think it's going to be the old days that Joe Biden kind of grew up in in the Senate, where people would sit around the table and, and make deals. And, you know, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan could work things out. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a different time. And I think that just leads to greater frustration and greater anger. I so had I read that when, um, when Biden's son, Bo died, that Mitch McConnell was the only Senate Republican that attended the funeral. And I wondered whether that friendship was going to be enough to create some comedy. What do you think? It's very hard to say. I mean, there's the incentives are not in that direction. And I also think that Trump is going to be involved in the next couple of years. I mean, assuming that he's not the president, uh, I'm making these comments, that he will maybe be running again in 2024. And even if he doesn't, he's going to be tweeting. He's going to be on the news. He commands great loyalty among the Republican Party. And um, it's going to, I think it could be a very, very difficult time. 
What can, well, I don't want to get to what, what we can do. We can save the what we can do question for the end of the show. Matt, our results here in Maine are not going to be certified till next week, right? We've got a recount tomorrow. and We have two recounts tomorrow. Um, we're very close to being done uh, with the certification. Actually, I just talked with Julie Flynn a few minutes before we started the call, and things are going quite well. Again, speaking to the, the very good work of the town clerks, getting that information to us so accurately and so quickly makes our work a lot easier. Um, so yeah, yeah, we'll be looking at certified results. And this is something that, and Ann, you remember how we had these sometimes rather tense discussions about how we were going to proceed with the November election. And part of what our challenge was that is just something we can't you know, push off is that there's only 29 days between election day and swearing in day of the legislature. So we, you know, as we were talking about some of the modifications uh, that I know that your organization was advocating for, like having a postmark deadline for absentee ballots, which some states went to, um, you know, you know, there were a lot of people that were asking for that. And we did not go, we did not go down that road. Um, Minnesota did. They went and got into a consent decree with the uh, Alliance for Retired Americans suit, and then a federal court rebuked them about three days before the election and said, no, you cannot accept late absentee ballots. So we dodged a few bullets along that way, but it allowed us to have, you know, to, to run the election as we knew how to run it with the tools that we knew that we had at our disposal. And that that worked very, very well. And, and you know, getting back to the turnout question a little bit, you know, again, I'm not a political scientist, but, you know, it, it did have a very different feel from 2016. And in 2016, when we opened up the absentee ballot request service, the online service, um, the first day we processed something like 140 applications. This year, when we opened it up, um, there are 2,000 applications the first hour, 20,000 the first day, wow. 55,000 the first week and about 532,000 altogether, which is more than twice what we've ever seen before. And I, th- I, I kind of had the sense that maybe this election was a lot less about Donald Trump than it was about Hillary Clinton, because people just didn't fall in love with Hillary Clinton in 2016. You had the whole dispute in the primary with Bernie Sanders and the superdelegates that left a very bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. And a lot of, a lot of Democrats, I think, in 2016 voted with their feet, and they stayed away thinking, Trump will never get elected. And then when he got elected, it's like, well, how bad could it be? And once they had the answers to those questions, they were determined um, to go back to 2016 and turn back the clock. That's kind of the sense I had. Mm-hmm. I have a question for Mary, if I could. Let me just do a quick station break and then we'll do that, okay? Um, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests are Shelley. Crosby, the Orono Town Clerk and President of the Maine Town and City Clerks Association, Matt Dunlap, Maine Secretary of State, Amy Freed, the John Mitchell Nickerson Professor and Chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Maine, Jill Goldthwaite, columnist and former independent Maine State Senator, and Meg McCormick, Maine Director and New England Coordinator for the Campus Election Engagement Project. So Jill, with that done, oh wait, our topic today is Election Reflections 2020. This show was pre-recorded on November 19th, so we're not taking listener calls or questions at this time, but if you have a comment, you can email us at news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. Okay, now, Jill, your question. Thanks for Shelley. Um, we had a tremendous amount of 
signature anxiety around here. It's a variable, if you will, because there is some level of judgment call about a signature where there isn't in other qualifications to be a voter. And I had people that had dropped their ballot off at the town office. And then two days later, they said, you know, my signatures really changed from when I registered there. It's not going to be the same there. And it seemed to me that there was maybe it was just a manifestation of the general anxiety, but there were just an awful lot of people who were really worried about what would happen on that signature comparison. Is that something you experienced in Orono, Shelley? So um, in regards to Orono, we, out of all of our ballots, which was roughly 3,600, give or take, that we did by absentee, there was literally only two that we had issues with of signature, and it was because they didn't get signed. We did not disqualify or kick out or reject any ballots on the premise of signature. Oh, there was that one. Which one? The one that got prosecuted. Well, that, well, what I, yeah, that's, I'm talking in regards to her question. Yeah, yeah. Which would be um, the signature. So I think what happened Going into this election, there was a couple of media reports where um, some journalists were trying to explain the mystery, let's say, behind um, the absentee process. And they talked on the topic of the signatures and how clerks verify and what they're looking for and what materials that they use to match up that signature. And in their zealousness to explain um, the mystery of elections, I think that they created some undue anxiety among the public. So the public maybe read the article and then assumed and or started putting in their theory of what could potentially happen to their ballot. And that is what caused this false sense of all of these ballots getting rejected or possibly being rejected around the state of Maine. When I had spoken to my clerk's offices around Maine, and I'd also worked with our um, advocacy coalition group, and we talked and we strategized on how to get the word out that this really was not a problem in Maine, that clerks were gonna be very diligent in making sure that we got those ballots cast appropriately. And we used variable sources to match a signature if there was a question. Um, we started to identify or believe that there was a false sense of fear of the whole signature issue. Matt, did you folks in Augusta receive calls on this? Did you did you think that it was going to be a problem? Because from the clerk's perspective, I did not see this as being a problem where a large group of ballots were just rejected because of a signature. We heard some of the same anxieties, Shelley, uh, from vote from folks. Um, but we heard also some of the typical stories where, you know, someone would go to a town office to vote absentee in person, and told they couldn't have one because they'd already requested one. I never requested an absentee. <laughs> this yeah. happens every cycle. People request it and then they forget about it, and then they have right. to go back to the pile of mail and then they find the ballot and the questions solved. And, and we account for every ballot. I think one feature that we brought in this year, thanks to our partners at the Information Resource of Maine, who developed this just because they could, and that was the tracking service, that people could actually get into the absentee ballot request service and see whether or not their ballot had been received and accepted. That was wildly popular mm. and helped assuage a lot of those fears that people felt 
you know, geez, I sent my absentee ballot in. Did they get it? You know, and it's, yeah, it's right there in black and white. People love that. And I think it, that helped take care of some of those concerns. I mean, the ballot rejection rate was way less than 1%. And many of those got cured. Um, so there were a surprisingly, this is from the league's work, a surprisingly low number of ballots that did not count. And I know clerks like you, Shelley, and others around the state really chased their voters down to make sure that they got a chance to cast their ballot if they if they wanted to. Yeah. Yep. So what what overall do you think were was the effect of COVID on turnout? Did it actually motivate people to turn out more or um was it, it not a factor at all? To go out, it was heaven. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Amy? You're on mute. Sorry. I I teach all the time on Zoom, but I don't turn off. I don't mute and unmute in the middle. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I think the issues around COVID were very motivating, certainly, both the handling of the health crisis and the economic fallout. Uh, those were major, major issues in the campaign. And so they, they tended to, you know, motivate a lot of people to, to vote. It must have been uh, an especially challenging issue for students, whether they were or were not on campus. Was that not true, Meg? Um, Yes, of course. Um, But I think that we nationally and statewide, we made October, you know, the month of voting. And, um, you know, this is students like first time, a lot of students first time voting. um, And they were very nervous about it um, and hesitant about the process because they've never voted ever. And then they haven't voted um, by absentee ballot or voted early in person. And so there was a lot of informational campaigns on the ground around this. And that's what we were working on all summer long to be those trusted people to um, answer any questions. And that was uh, really well received. I do think um, on voter registration, I, I we were up actually, I think for um, young people, around voter registration, but that was cumbersome just because our state doesn't have online voter registration. And so students, um, and then we couldn't have tabling um, on campus. So that was probably the biggest hurdle um, for our students. Yep. Yep. A lot of first time voters facing additional obstacles. And, you know, I mean, Maine is a very permissive state. Its voting laws are very inclusive. But what do you think was the effect of vote suppression in other states where the obstacles were more significant and were in some cases made higher um, in this particular election. Who has a comment on that? I'll say that I think the voters were heroic people that stood outside in rain and cold and every other thing for hours and hours to vote. That's that's dedication. That's wonderful. I mean, we had the advantage, if you will, of being sparsely populated in most areas of our state. And Waiting in line is usually an, an, an unusual occurrence in our elections, but people that were just there for, and I remember one interview um, on television about a group of people who were waiting, and this gentleman said that they had a lengthy conversation. Nobody ever asked each other who they were voting for. They talked about the election, they talked about other issues, but here's this big clot of people moving very slowly along in a line. And uh, he said he was pretty sure that probably they were not all voting for the same person. 
And yet there they were out to vote and having a, a civil conversation about life and issues in general. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah, go ahead, Amy. I think it is great that people were willing to do that. And in some ways, there may have even been some backlash when people felt like their, you know, their votes were being suppressed. But let's not forget that some people probably weren't able to vote because of some of these steps, Um, you know, whether they would have had to wait for a long time and they had to get to a job or they had to pick up a, a, a kid from childcare, so they couldn't wait on such a long line. Or you had what I think is really a terrible situation in Florida where voters had passed, they needed a supermajority to uh, pass, a, pa- pass a, I believe it was a constitutional amendment so that ex-felons could vote. You know, Maine, of course, we don't have felon disenfranchisement. We don't have disenfranchisement if you're in prison. Uh, But, you know, most states have some kind of felon disenfranchisement laws. And uh, Florida did away with it. But then the state legislature said you had to pay your court fees. And they didn't then have a system where people could even find out what their court fees were which is, to me, how can you have a law that you can, that you have to comply with something and then you can't find out exactly what you need to comply with. So, I, I mean, there, there definitely were problems in a lot of states in terms of ongoing disenfranchisement. And, you know, my sort of good government side of myself would say, none of that should be happening. We should have as easy voting every place as we do in Maine. Um, I mean, I understand it as a political strategy, but I, I, I'm troubled by it. So, I mean, explain as a political st- strategy, help us understand it. Like, what is going on there? Well, in Florida, the population that's being kept from voting are disproportionately people of color and people of color in Florida tend to vote more Democrat. And that's what's going on. It's trying to keep out a certain group of voters. Um, And we know from some research that people who uh, go through any kind of system of incarceration or even have experience with that indirectly, like through family members uh, or people they're close to in their community often feel very disempowered anyway. So they're often not going to vote. But then you put up this big legal restriction. And, you know, these there's big historical roots to this going back to post-Reconstruction period, um, really, you know, it's it's again part of a whole system of trying to keep at the time black people from voting, you know, along with literacy tests and such. And what do you think is the I mean, is there are there statistics about the cumulative effect of that overall? I can't draw from them right now from my memory, but mm-hmm. they definitely have some impact. Um, uh, and, you know, if there, there, there were groups that were trying to help former felons from to register to vote and to vote. But it was difficult given the timing of when different uh, steps happened, whether from the Florida legislature or from the federal courts that upheld this. 
and also not because there was not a single database. Like you could not look and say, I need to pay $1,500, or I need to pay $15,000, whatever it would happen to be in terms of the fees. You could not find that out, especially if you had things happen in more than one county. The record keeping was just a mess. And I mean, the idea that, you know, okay, you have to do X to do Y, you have to pay this fee, whatever. Imagine if you wanted to get your driver's license restored after some incident, I guess, I don't know, matter some, maybe it would involve drunk driving or whatever it would involve, but nobody could tell you what the amount of money would be for you to get that back. I mean, that's, it's, it's kind of absurd. It's, you know, it's, Orwellian almost. I mean, like, here's the system that you have a, I think, a very fundamental right as a citizen, and yet you can't access it, even though you had over, I believe, close to about 70% of the Florida electorate voted to restore these voting rights. I mean, that's, that's a, you know, cross-partisan group of, of people voting for that, and yet people could not get that that vote back. Implemented in a practical sense, yeah. Listen, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Shelley Crosby, Orono Town Clerk, uh, Matt Dunlap, Maine Secretary of State, Amy Freed, Professor and Chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Maine, Jill Goldthwaite, Columnist and former Independent Maine State Senator, and Meg McCormick, Maine Director and New England Coordinator for the Campus Election Engagement Project. This program was pre-recorded on Thursday, so no listener calls are being taken. Um, So as we... um, you know, sort of think about how is this going to wrap up? You know, Maine is going to certify its election results, I guess, next week. Um, Michigan has, you know, not certified, then they did certify. Now they're trying to recant their certification. I mean, how, how is this going to wrap up? What is the national timeline among other states for certification? And when will we really know? No. Do you know, Matt, from your well, work the with electoral the- college is scheduled to convene on December 14th. So, you know, states really should be wrapping up their work before that. I think December 8th is one of the deadlines I've heard to get our certificates. And when we send these certificates, you know, we send them to different places, like for the president of the United States, obviously the clerk of the U.S. House, the uh, the, uh, secretary of the Senate, but also the archivist of the United States gets the result, um, as well as the district court after we do the electoral college. Um, you know, so it's it's hard. I can't obviously I can't speak for other states is a, the old line that if you know how elections run in your state, then you know how elections run in your state. You don't know how they run in another state. And and um, I've been in pretty close communication with a lot of the other secretaries over the last couple of weeks. Of course, you know, Brad Raffensberger in Georgia is just under siege right now and um, is trying to you know, he's like he's like. Uh, Beau Geste at Fort Zindernuf right now, um, getting it from all sides, had a recall effort mounted against him by Democrats after he closed so many polling stations in Western Georgia. It made it almost impossible for black voters to participate in the primary. And now, of course, he's being asked to resign by all the Republicans because the <laughs> Joe Biden is leading in Georgia. So um, that aside, though, that's more the exception than the rule. I think what we're seeing mostly happen around the country is exactly what's played out in Maine. And 
And you know, part of the anxiety around this election was how long it, is, it took to call the election. Because like in Pennsylvania, they couldn't start processing their absentee ballots until after the polls closed. And so, and I would tell the press, if that was us, you wouldn't have results from us for at least a week. Because you know, with over half a million absentee ballots, uh, and again, the governor extended the early processing time from four days to a full week. That was absolutely crucial so that Shelley and the other clerks could get that work done. Right. So we could wrap up the election by the close, not long after the close of the polls on election night. And that was just not the case in every state. Well, I mean, this is not the first close election that we've had in my lifetime. Right. And, it, you know, there was Bush v. Gore that was close. It took a long time to decide. We were just talking before the, the show started about the Kerry election and Kerry v. Bush in 2004, where Kerry went to bed thinking he won and woke up learning he lost in Ohio. That was super controversial. This seems different, though. I mean, why is this feeling so fraught, Jill? I think part of it is with the possible exception of the um, Al Gore Bush election, um, the in every case within about 24 hours, the loser conceded. So that's a very big difference here. Um, and there may have still been wrangling that went on about other issues, but there was a basic sense of who won and who lost. And if there's a place to find optimism in all this, in addition to the performance of the town clerks, it is the performance of all the associated voter officials who are not yelling accusations at people and threatening other people and all that basically on both sides both parties are saying this was a free and fair election uh it was run well and the results are clear and there may be a maelstrom of people all around them um speaking to the contrary but the people who actually ran the elections be they democrats or republicans uh seem to feel that the elections were well run and fair and that the count is accurate. And that's a hopeful thing if we can sustain ourselves amidst the din of, of all of the, the legal wrangling about it all. Go ahead, Amy. I, uh, I would agree with all of that, Joe. I, I'd also say that what's happening nationally with the Trump campaign raising all these questions is not only predictable, but I predicted it. I wrote a piece I said to that, uh, which, you know, perhaps you could put in show notes or something, which, by the way, mentions Secretary Dunlap's work with the uh, Trump Voter Fraud Commission, because he, he has been saying this for a long time. Anytime he doesn't do well or, you know, he claims that there's some fraud. He did it during the 2016 primaries. He did it after he was elected in 2016 with this commission. He did it in the lead up to this election, saying that there was going to be fraud. And now they're saying there's going to be fraud. And he has these various attorneys and such saying it as well. The thing is, when you actually look at the court cases and you look at the uh, proceedings in these various states, they don't have fraud. They say there's fraud when they go on news shows or tweet but then they do not actually have incidents of fraud. It's certainly not in any large numbers. And even some of the other things about not being able to observe ballot counting, it turns out to be just untrue. 
And ultimately, you can't win election cases based on tweets. You have to win on what you present into the courtroom. But you you have a very difficult situation now politically because you have a fair number of Republicans, different polls saying anywhere between 50 percent and about 75 percent of Republicans thinking that there actually was large scale vote fraud. And it's it's you know, I mean, I would see it as part of a larger trend about using distrust strategically for political purposes. But whatever, however you understand it, I think it is a difficult and troubling sort of situation because we do actually have a very good election system. And all of the people working on it, whether it's poll workers, secretaries of state, you know, people are doing a good job. And the judges who are hearing these cases are listening carefully and looking for evidence. And, you know, where we don't want to undermine the sense of legitimacy of this of this core democratic institution. Still, the outrage is so powerful, right? You know, and what Amy says is absolutely true. And, and I read the article that you uh, sent to us, Amy, very, very well done. I posted it on the league's website for our listeners. If you want to look for it afterwards, it's lwvme.org under the Democracy Forum tab. Go ahead, Matt. Um, you know, there's an old saying for those of us who are not mechanically gifted that when you're underneath a car and you're working on something, the nearest thing you can reach is a hammer. And, you know, that's very true here. I mean, those of us who are old enough to sort of see this landscape, you can kind of break the American political trust landscape into to a before and after, and that's Watergate. Before Watergate, people tended to trust the government. After Watergate, they tended to not trust the government. And what Trump has done here is he's taken that sense of unease and distrust and absolutely weaponized it to secure and maintain his base. They hang on his every word. Everything he says is absolutely true because he has said it. And, you know, if, if you if you went outside and said the sky is purple, that's what public opinion polls would show is that 40 percent of the public would say that the sky actually is purple and it's the liberal media saying it's blue. So, you know, and that's and that's a condition that's going to take a long time um, and a lot of different types of changes to really uh, rinse off of the political dialogue. There were so many questions we didn't get to ask. I wanted to um, just ask very quickly if somebody would like to comment on ranked choice voting in this election. It didn't come into play in any of the federal elections. I think House Republicans actually lost a seat because they didn't have ranked choice voting. They could have held on to Norm Higgins' seat if they'd had it. But um, any last minute thoughts about ranked choice voting this year? I'll just say that I thought it, um, it, it helped me in my voting choices. It, it helped me with my decisions about who to vote for in certain races. And it may not have been needed in terms of a no 50% uh, vote in any election, but I think it was still extremely useful in, in making decisions about how to vote. I think that ranked choice voting, and I know that it's not yet safe to say that it's here to stay. You know, right now the Republican party looks at ranked choice voting as an existential threat. Um, and it, until they win a race, like they could have done in Dover um, with ranked choice voting, then uh, if they, as the wheel turns, I mean, eventually the Republicans will take the majority back in the legislature and you'll have a Republican governor again at some point. And if they haven't benefited from ranked choice voting, the LD1 will be to repeal ranked choice voting. Um, but you know, absent that, if it continues to 
run the way it's been designed and it gets better every time we do it. We figure out something new about it and make it better the next time. Uh, voters will come to get pretty used to it and they're going to, and I think they trust it. We are coming towards the end of our show and I want to give each of you at least 30 seconds to make some closing comments about this election season and what the future holds. So who would like to go first? Shelly, are you up for going first? Closing comments, final thoughts, what it meant and what we look ahead for? Very quickly. Well, um, I would just say that the Clarks of Maine are glad that the election is over. I yes. mean, the actual election. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that the work is really over. But, um, you know, just the amount of prep and everything that went into it and the absentees and just it's like a grand performance. And when the performance is over, you're glad that you li lived through it. Um well, congratulations guess, to you all. Yeah, I, I guess if I was going to say anything, if I could choose a perfect world, it would probably be that all 50 states had election laws that were the same and everybody had the same deadlines and everyone could process their absentees the same. And I think if we could get to that place someday, um, perhaps some of the accusations going both ways on both sides of the political divide would not be happening because then everybody would know the rules of engagement. I'm dealing with a lot of questions from the public about, well, why is this state this way? Why is this state that way? Why did you do this and not this? So um, that's just my wish list, but it was a great ride. <laughs> Quick comment from somebody else. I'll just say that um, I, I think that um, Joe Biden is the president elect and, and will be certified to have won the election. And that gives us a chance, not a guarantee, but a chance to get this country back into a much better position as far as our ability to think rationally, have civil discourse, etc. And I fervently hope that we take that chance to heart. Jill Goldthwaite, I'm really sorry we are totally dead out of time right now. Thank you to our guests this afternoon. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM, streaming live at WERU.org. Our website at the League of Women Voters is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in our series. Coming up next, Counterspin, followed by Between the Lines on your community radio station, WERU-FM. <laughs> <laughs>